0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to
1: Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. This is the marriage and kids can be expensive, but at least they're also a huge headache episode. I'm Cardiff Garcia. On the show today, first, I visit my old pal and colleague and, of course, Alpha Chat co-host, Shannon Bond, For a chat about the economics of becoming a new parent, Shannon is actually still on maternity leave. So Amy and I crashed her Harlem apartment for this conversation. And then afterwards, Washington Post columnist Catherine Rampell joins us back here in the New York studio for a look at how marriage trends are changing and what they mean societally and for the economy. So here we go. And for the first segment of the show, we are in the Harlem home of Shannon Bond, co-host of Alpha Chat, Shannon, welcome back.
2: Hi, Kardash.
1: You know how long it's been since I've been in, able to introduce somebody and not say guest host. All uh, right,
2: about five and a half months. That's like right. Six months. That's
1: right. That's right. Uh, you are still deep in the throes of maternity leave. We're just, you know, Amy and I just decided to drop in on you for a quick segment.
2: Well, welcome to Harlem.
1: I know it's great. So you want to you want to give us a little bit of a. Give our listeners kind of a sense of where we are right now, what's happening.
2: So we're sitting in my living room uh, at our kitchen table, and uh, there's a pot of soup boiling away on the stove that my husband is currently cooking, and Merritt is making a special appearance. You might be able to hear him in the background. He has the The hiccups.
1: He's adorable when he has the hiccups, by the
2: way. He's he's adorable most of the time, but, yeah, the hiccups is particularly hilarious.
1: Indeed. Uh, There's a good reason that Amy and I decided to interrupt – your uh, time bonding with your child, though, which is we wanted to do a segment on the economics of child rearing and of having a new baby. And as I happen to be single and childless, okay? I'm your perfect test case here. Yeah, I didn't think I could speak to it with quite (laughs) as much authority as you can. So my role, I think, is just going to be to ask the questions and respond and maybe drop a few uh, data points, uh, and you can tell us what's going on. Uh, So let me start with actually a personal question, right? A lot of people know that when you have a new kid, number one, you don't get a lot of sleep uh, and number two, sometimes it's a bit of a shock how expensive it is. Uh, has anything about it like surprised you five months in?
2: Yes. And yet it's it's sort of – it is – I think one of the things that, that uh, my husband Jesse and I said to each other a lot in the beginning is like this is really, really hard. And the thing is when especially when you're pregnant, people tell you all the time. They first of all they tell you it's gonna be really hard. They tell you your life is gonna change. Uh, that, you know everything is gonna be just turned upside down. And that's all true. And you can understand that all intellectually, and then it happens and you're like, Oh my god, this is really hard and right. my life is completely changed. I mean the so I would just say like the actual experience of going through it with something as, as prepared as you can be for it, you're not really prepared for.
1: Right, like intuitively I could write down all the things that I would imagine you're going through and you could probably check them off and say yeah, that's true, that's true, yep. that's true. But viscerally living
2: it is yeah, it is, is a, a whole, whole different story. Whole experience. Yeah, yeah, and and it's I mean, you know, you've you've never known sort of the sleep deprivation uh, uh, until you've had the sleep deprivation of those early weeks.
1: Okay, let's talk about the economics of Having a kid, then. Oh All right. my God! Uh, yeah. Let me let me throw uh, one number at you. Uh, it's the one that jumped out at me while doing research uh, for this segment. According to New America, it's a think tank, the average cost of daycare in the U.S. is nine thousand six hundred dollars. That's roughly the same as it costs to go to an in-state college for a year. How does that make you feel?
2: Well, luckily we, we live in New York City, <laughs> so I don't even. I, I, I shudder to think what the average cost of daycare right. is here. No, it's real. That number is a proportion of our budget. Like our, you know, once I once I go back to work and we're having to, we're, we're not even sure what we're going to do. We started to look into both the nanny situation as well as daycares. It's you know, it's a real challenge. Like thinking about that, thinking about the amount we're going to be spending. You know, we are. You know, we, so we already live in a very expensive city. You know, we spend a good proportion of our income on rent. Uh, I think as a lot of New Yorkers do, and uh, childcare is definitely going to be a cost that goes that's 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 adding into that. And you know, we're incredibly lucky, actually. So uh, we're in a I would venture to guess a very small percentage of the populations would have the the situation that Jesse and I have, which is that I had quite a long maternity leave. I got six months from the FT, um, and he has three months of paternity leave, which is. You know for our our non American listeners is like almost unheard of in the u s right and so he actually he, jesse took some time off when I first had the baby, and then he's going to take some time off when I go back to work mm-hmm. so we're in a really lucky situation where Merritt will be uh, almost nine months old by the time we're actually having to pay for childcare for the first time, so that's nine months that we've managed to get away with not paying for it right um, which will make a huge difference when we talk about those costs at the same time what one of the things you know, I, I again maybe I had sort of knew it intellectually, but it's different actually experiencing it. You know, you're really in the U.S. You're kind of you're on your own until in the New York pre-K, universal pre-K starts at four years old. But those first four years, I mean, you can spend you can spend a college tuition, you know, sending your kids to to daycare, to preschool, you know, to, pre, to potentially pre pre-K.
1: Yeah. So I mean, your your options then are either. Both of you keep working, but then you have to pay somebody else to do it. And as we've just discussed, that's really expensive. Or somebody stays home, but then you give up the income that way, which in its own way is also incredibly expensive.
2: Yeah. I mean, you see it particularly, you know, I think in really high cost cities and just in general, I think it's something like 23 states where the median cost of childcare is like higher than the median rent, right?
1: Yeah, it's like it's, 40% in some of these lower right. income states.
2: So so in, in, in those sort of cases... You actually see why it, it can make a lot of economic sense actually for one parent, it's often the mother, to stop working because if I'm going to work and I'm the only reason I'm working is to pay for somebody else to take care of my child, if I'm not t- keeping any take-home pay, then sorry, Merit's that's making his uh, debut making on
1: the present, podcast. is really present excited. Present.
2: yeah. But you hear well, you hear more and more from people, you know, about the, the, how they're dealing with this the financial squeeze when they have kids is. You know, maybe they're able – they're maybe just able to cover, you know, all of their obligations, their monthly bills, their rent, their child care, but they're not saving for retirement or, you know, they're having to pick up an extra job. Just there's a lot of things, you know, you're, where you're really juggling. And then you throw into – I think, you know, a lot of people our age are increasingly having – you know, their parents are, are older. They talk about this you know, the sandwich generation, right, where you both have your own children to take care of and potentially your elderly parents to support. It, it becomes really –
1: people are waiting until a little bit later in exactly. life to start families.
2: Exactly. And you know when you, back to your question about you know for for the idea that some for some people it's just going to make more sense like not to work I mean that's one of the other things that that I think is really confounding and is really it's really difficult when you think about deciding to become a parent and particularly for mothers in so many ways it feels like the economic incentives discourage you from working as a mother mm-hmm. you know this whole question of like can you have it all but it's not you know can you can I have a, a a career? And can I, you know, be the best parent that I can? I mean, aside from all of the, the time issues, the pure financial issues, it's really, really difficult.
1: Sure. And to stay with that theme for a second, I want to cite some findings from a new paper by Alexandra Stanzik, an economist. The, I think, biggest finding she had was that as childbirth approaches and then in the immediate years afterwards, U.S. household income declines quite a bit, most of that has to do with the decline in the mother's income.
2: Right, the time and you, that she's probably having exactly.
1: to take off. Uh, so you can, you, know, you can imagine the sort of obvious way in which this happens. She takes time off. Maybe she doesn't have generous maternity leave, so she's just straight up giving up the income. Right. But what's interesting about that is that for mothers who don't have uh, generous packages and who are less educated in general, there's an incredibly steep decline as the date of the childbirth arrives and then it shoots... Right back up, not far afterwards, but they it stays below. Right, right.
2: right. They're not getting back to their, their pre-parenthood right. wages. Um,
1: for educated mothers who usually do have access to more generous maternity leave, right? And potentially paid declines. maternity leave. Paid maternity mm-hmm. leave. It declines, but then it takes a very long mm-hmm. time for it to get back to where it was. Uh, and again, you can kind of imagine how that could happen. So uh, in the year, for instance, not in the year, in the six months that you're taking off, right, you're not doing, say, freelance assignments. Mm-hmm. You're not getting paid to uh, speak at conferences. Um, you're, not, you're also not at the job. So if you were putting in the work that might lead to either a promotion later on mm-hmm. um, or to an assignment that would have paid you uh, a little more money, you're not doing that. Right, right. right um and so even in your case you could see how it would take a little bit longer to get back to the trajectory that you were on before
2: yeah absolutely and you know one of the things that, that i have found really frustrating especially sort of during this this political season that we're in is that you know the conversation because because the US is so far behind so many other developed countries we don't have any mandatory paid family leave right i mean essentially the best the best you can kind of be guaranteed is that if you work at a company that employs more than 50 people, you can't get fired for taking 12 weeks off, but they don't have to pay you. I mean increasingly companies, particularly like in the tech industry, you know, companies are starting to, to offer more generous packages and offer pay. Leave, but it's just – it's still not the norm at all, right? So most people are taking whatever leave they can. It's going to be unpaid and it's therefore going to be limited. But it's, it goes so far beyond that. So, of course, like we, should, we want to address that. But it also then gets into subsidizing childcare. It gets into making it possible for people to feel that they can go back and be productive. And like, yes, you're, you, you recognize you're going to – you're taking that time off and you're going to be maybe a little bit behind when you come back. But are you then able to reenter the workforce in a way where you're supported and that you feel that you can really like do all the, you know, do all that you can at work while also feel like you're not kind of sidelining your family, right? So- right. Yeah.
1: I want to address uh, a criticism that I can already anticipate coming from some listeners, um, and specifically from listeners who uh, share circumstances closer to mine than to yours, right? In other words, single, childless people um, who might say, "Well, hang on a second, uh, you knew that." Uh, raising a kid was going to be expensive um, it 's true that you 're going to take a hit in your income and maybe hit to your career, but you get compensated with a bigger family with the love of your child with the knowledge that uh, when you're older you'll have uh, you know you 'll have a kid or two and you might even have grandkids. Um, so why should there be a distribution from the childless to people with kids when that was your choice? I actually have a response to that, and I think it's a pretty good one. Um, uh, It's not a a novel one, but I I think (laughs) it it still holds, which is that actually uh, a growing population is a public good, that as the population grows, you have a bigger economy, you have more specialization, Mm -hmm. you have more people buying things, you have more people making things, and it's an awful lot of work to do that. And so in some sense, I'm actually quite happy to use my tax dollars to help parents do that job. Right. right. And that's just, you know, speaking on it in very cold utilitarian terms, I think it still makes sense. Let me move off the subject of cost now to uh, productivity, which is what you were talking about earlier. Because uh, I love this idea of now having to set boundaries at work and how actually that can make you more efficient during the time you actually do spend at work because right. you're not sort of thinking, well, I have all day, and then even half the night to get this done, actually by 5 or 6 o'clock, I need to get going because I need to get home or even earlier. It, It makes you think that maybe more of us should be better about this Anyways, right. that just for the sake of le- leading a more balanced life, even if you don't have a kid to go home to, you should be doing that. And we live in one of the worst professions for that, or we work in one of the worst professions yes. for that, frankly. I mean, because know. the news is always happening. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. what's interesting about this, though, is that in a way it seems to introduce like a sense of purpose into your work, uh, not you, your work specifically, Shannon Bond, but like, that in, in, <laughs> right, no, but like into in, uh, a sense of purpose uh, into jobs where maybe it doesn't exist. Yeah. And I think, at least among the educated classes there's all this pressure to like find work that you love all the time as if we should all be doing jumping jacks every minute of the day because we're so happy to be at our jobs i've always thought that was really kind of silly and then there's a sense of disappointment when you're in a job that doesn't provide that incredible sense of transcendent meaning that you thought you'd have when you got older uh and you were in the workforce it seems like well, having a kid is a pretty good remedy for that disappointment because now it does have that sense of purpose. That even if every minute of your that you're doing your job isn't like this amazingly joyous perfect moment, you know that it's going towards a very significant end, which is raising your kid.
2: Yeah, my one pushback to the, that would be one of the experiences I've had, you know, over the past five months, um, is that this is all-encompassing taking care of a child, and and it's in many ways exciting and exhausting, it can also be really tedious. And it's increasingly, you know, important for me, uh, you know, as I'm getting, as I'm less sleep deprived and I'm kind of more used to it, to have conversations with people that are not about kids and to to have some sort of, you know, intellectual engagement going on in my brain. You know, I've been reading more in the in the past month or so, you know, watching TV, all of these things. And, you know, I think one of the things that's really important for me, like, I think I will be a better parent, A, because I'm working. Like, ultimately, I think kind of in the grand scheme of things, yes, like, would I love to be able to spend more time with my kid that I'm not gonna be able to spend because I'm at work? Yeah, but I actually think. In the – sort of as a holistic person, like I will be better for – like the time I will have with him will be better because I will have time that is not with him where I am doing other things and engaging. My work doesn't need to be my be-all and end-all, but I want it to be something that I care about doing.
1: Sure. I I should note also one piece of research uh, that we looked at before this segment. It will be very fast because it's actually – it's a paper by economists about economists, right? Um, Very self-selective. Oh, yeah. So yeah (laughs) – you but know, really interesting. Su- yeah, <laughs> super caveat-laden, basically. Uh, the sample size was 10,000. Um, it essentially showed that uh, throughout their the course of their careers and at every phase of their careers, men and women with kids were actually more productive per hour, more mm-hmm. efficient uh, than men and women uh, without kids. Now, obviously, uh, some of that is going to be like a kind of a self-selecting sample where like people who are just super organized and efficient anyways – might be more likely to have children, Mm -hmm. okay? But even so- Or to be
2: economists. Or to be economists,
1: (laughs) right? And it's only one profession and it's like people with PhDs. So this is a very, very, very niche slice of the population. Everybody should keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. Um, But the female productivity story was more complicated than that for men where the differences were actually pretty small, right? Um, There was a big productivity loss associated with the early years of having a kid. It's just that the mothers- were so much more productive anyways that even taking into account that loss they were still more productive than childless women right. at every single stage of their careers i thought that was really quite fascinating i don't know if that holds across the rest of the population or even across other like social science academics who the hell knows right. but no, right? it's interesting this but, right
2: this idea that you it's you know essentially what's the best cure for procrastination right or you know you you just you need to get stuff done and you can see why that would be true
1: no, totally. Uh here's one last part of this topic that I want to address. Uh and it's one that I think is maybe uh more worrying, something that might be a negative, right? Which is that if you think about creative occupations and I'll go ahead and throw journalism in there for now, right? Because it does involve like a creative turn of phrase, it does involve uh coming up with topics and like making links between things. So I'm I'm essentially I'm I'm talking about creative occupations or jobs that you don't traditionally think of as creative, but that involve very heavy elements of creativity in them, of imaginative, you know, ideas, concepts, connections that you have to make. We know from the research that uh, having great creative insights often requires both intensive thinking about something, but then also a period of like relaxation away Mm -hmm. from it where you're thinking about something else, where you're essentially letting your mind roam free essentially it's playtime for adults, right? And that when you're not thinking about it later on and your brain is sort of ruminating over it, you have this like aha moment, you know? It seems to me that even if you are super efficient at your job, at getting done like your to-do list, right? you know, And then you go home and you see your kid and your whole day was really efficient, that maybe the one thing you'd be missing from that day is that time of like, I'm just stepping away from this. I'm going to like read a book about something else right. or play a game of chess or like watch a show, you know, or I'm just going to sit out on the patio and have a cup of tea. Well, that's by definition,
2: you know? like the time, that, like if, if you have, when you're looking at sort of at the, you know, the pie chart of your day, like what are you going to shrink in order to accommodate these new demands? Like that's right. probably the, the natural place. But yeah, but it's probably. I mean, I imagine it we'll, will I'll report back in a couple of months, but yeah. I imagine that will be an incredible challenge. I guess my, the,
1: the way I would react to that, though, is to say that that would be the most natural thing that you'd shrink. But it's probably a mistake to shrink oh, yeah. that, right? Like it's probably a better idea to cut out an hour of like the time that you're at your desk, mm-hmm. you know, get away from it and, and take like a nice walk in the park or something like that. Um, that Actually, that's a more efficient use of your time or yeah. it's a better use of your yeah. time you know, for, your, for your whole career. Okay, uh, final topic I want to discuss. Uh, it's the motherhood penalty and the fatherhood bonus. There's a lot of research on this. Uh, we've spoken before about the gender wage gap um, and how it's very small. It exists, but it's very small after college right. and in the first few years uh, of your twenties. And then it opens up quite significantly during the child rearing years, right? For the reasons, part of the reasons we yeah. talked
2: about, right? That women are going to be out of the workforce and, and those sort of that ways in which you might slightly fall behind. But then it, like, compounds.
1: Right. But Claudia Golden, the economist that we've cited on this before, essentially found that it had to do with, like, three kinds of jobs, though, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Law, finance, and then what I think she referred to as, like, corporate management, which, Mm -hmm. you know, can apply across industries, Mm -hmm. but it had to do with, like, upper-level managerial positions, you know? Mm -hmm. And... Uh, essentially, these were jobs that had one thing in common, which was they had nonlinear effects on pay. Whereas, where if you work 35 hours, you get paid X amount. But if you work 70 hours at those jobs, you got way more than two X right. amount. Right. right. And it seems to me like the real issue here then is that for women with kids, it's impossible to work those jobs and also spend a lot of time with your family. Right. And
2: uh, you, and you, potentially get penalized for doing it. I mean you we, definitely get penalized right. for it With the idea know. that like for, a, for a, if a mother if a mother is, if leaves work early because of you know in, and it's known that she's going to a child's doctor's appointment or a play right. or whatever or soccer practice like she is seen more negatively than somebody else leaving early for a different reason but right. if it's not related to their kids right, right.
1: A couple of other studies that we'll link to, one from the American Journal of Sociology. This was a a lab test, but I think one that was really quite telling, uh, where essentially it was one of those tests where they sent out like a bunch of resumes that all looked the same except for one thing that was different. In one case, uh, the woman had kids. In another case, she didn't. And it turned out that uh, in terms of perceptions, right, those mothers with kids were thought to be less competent and to deserve a lower starting salary. I mean, when it's you really hear, yeah, I was going to say, like, when you hear something like that, do you think that's something that can get better over time, uh, or is that something that you think uh, is going to sort of forever be fixed?
2: Well, I don't know. I mean, I think if we think it really is in some ways like endemic to a certain set of professions that have like a certain set of norms and expectations um, that are probably slow to change um then then maybe not because frankly like if the, or you know there's, that's the argument of like you knew what you were getting into going to a corporate law firm right like these, this is what the expectation if you want to make partner like this is what you have to do and it doesn't matter what you're doing in the rest of your life this is what you have to do you know i think if we we think that it probably maybe doesn't have as strong effects in other in other uh Types of employment, but that in general, like, you know, there's sort of a more broad, broader social perception of this. I think it could change. I mean, particularly, you know, we we talk too much about millennials, but you know, I think that it, there's a lot of certainly anecdotal evidence that you know millennials have bring a different sort of expectation of sort of values and ideas about work-life balance, and you know, sort of the value of their their whole self, you know, the holistic self, rather than just you know whatever's happening at work to the workplace and. You could then, I mean, you would follow from that that as millennials sort of move up into, you know, levels into management, if they, if they are the ones kind of setting the tone in the workplace. You know, it's interesting. You, you do see some companies where, you know, change is happening. Maybe it's happening slowly, but it's happening. I mean, you, you see it in tech, right? You see what Google and Facebook offer in terms of, you know, paid maternity and, and paternity leave, child bonuses, you know, things – a lot of things that actually in other countries, you know, the government – Takes care of, but you know they're they're offering to people in the U.S. Um, you know, I think it's for for them. My guess is it's a recruitment strategy, right? That you can come here and you can have a family, and you're not going to be penalized for it. And that is like that's it's a you know it's a cognitive shift in how you're thinking about the 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 lives of your workers. Either it you know takes a strong personality at the top to say this is the, the culture that we're going to set. And I think you know it, it's also it's it's hard to change those cultures. I mean, you see this in the U.K. There you know there's now this 52 weeks of shared. Uh, parental leave that new parents can take and mothers and fathers can decide how to split it. Um, but one of the problems that ha- they found happened is that men aren't taking it even though they're entitled to because there's still a perception even though you're allowed to take that time like yeah. are you discouraged, there's, right?
1: Well, there is a paternity leave penalty right. that still exists too and it goes alongside a fatherhood bonus. What's interesting about this is that it's only it only applies to like the really high-end professions, mm-hmm. right? The ones that pay a lot mm-hmm. of money. And that is still a societal perception. In other words, that fatherhood is a valued quality in a male employee. It's It's unfair, but it's it's there. But
2: motherhood and mother is a liability. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I always go back to a a couple of facts. One is that women are still graduating from college um, at a much higher pace than men are. And also that a lot of the jobs that are expected to be created in the future are jobs that traditionally have been – dominated by women Mm -hmm. right um and so at some point i think this these things don't you know have any choice but to kind of you know revert back to something resembling equality i hope though i I can't i can't say that for sure
2: well and i mean we've talked you talked about this i should say um, on this podcast with anne-marie slaughter right this this question of like at what point do we really change, like, our, what our, our perception and value of caregiving in general, right? Where it's not limited, frankly, to just a parenthood, but you, that where we we sort of see these these kind of roles that people have to take, whether it's their for their elderly parents, like, you know, all these things. You're, we're just going to have to consider things differently as a society, and it does feel like that that change is coming, but maybe a little too slowly for okay. our taste.
1: Well, you got to wet your beak a little bit. You got to. Dip your beak back in the podcast (laughs) waters. I don't – what am I doing with this metaphor? Where is it going? I I don't know. Isn't that – yeah. Well, uh, I hope you enjoyed it uh, as much as we enjoyed having you. great
2: to be back and maybe I'll come down and pay you guys a visit before I'm back full time in the new year.
1: Excellent. But you know what we do at the end of each segment, right?
2: Recommendations? Yeah. What's yours? All right. So I'm going to recommend in this dire, dire political season, which thank God is almost over, I'm going to recommend two movies uh, that we have recently rewatched. Uh, the first is Election with Reese Witherspoon, um, which is just in light of like this current race, uh, you know, in brief, it is the tale of like an overachieving high schooler running for student council who is uh, met with an unexpected challenge by like a popular – Dumb jock with a lot of money. Would you
1: say that was peak Witherspoon?
2: Oh, it's – well, no. Actually, I would (laughs) say that uh, Cruel Intentions is peak Witherspoon. We also recently rewatched that. But it's 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 just great. It's a great movie anyway. But it's it also feels very relevant. And then the other movie we watched recently that I had never seen before, which was amazing, is Brewster's Millions. I don't. It's like from the '80s. It's with Richard Pryor. He's a baseball player. He has to burn through a bunch of money, and so he runs a political campaign. And uh, his his party is none of the above. And I just feel like Why that. Does he have to burn through a bunch of. <laughs> well, money? That's the whole plot. I'm not going to oh, give it okay. away, you don't way, you? Um No, no, it's ridiculous. But again, as a sort of as an indictment. <laughs> Of uh, the absurdity of our elections.
1: Janet, see you next time. Thanks so much. And we are back here in the New York studio where I am joined by Catherine Rampell, a columnist at The Washington Post, also a former theater critic. Also and e- true. Economics blogger, also uh, at The New York Times in a former uh, iteration of your career. Catherine, I actually still attribute all of your success to your having been an economics blogger in the first place. I think that laid the foundations for everything.
0: I mean, I still write a lot about economics, so it's not so far off from what I'm doing now.
1: But I feel like the the depth of your columns, like the emphasis on data, forming your opinions with at least some grounding, uh, not just in anecdotes, but in surveys and studies and research, all that has to be like from the good habits you picked up earlier.
0: Sure. I I would like to think that most people uh, would ground their own opinions in data. Um, That's not always the case. But I do strive to find numbers that either support or disprove hypotheses that I have and go from there and – Turns out sometimes my hypotheses are wrong, and I'll write about that, or sometimes I'll move on to other things. But yes, generally what I write about, I try to find uh, – I get ideas from looking at surveys and government data releases, and I also dig into those kinds of things um, when I'm pursuing Various ideas I already
1: have. Yeah. Well, you do it beautifully. I'm going to start this segment by embarrassing you making you all red-faced. I've said on Twitter before, I think you're the best columnist, new columnist added to the roster of a major American newspaper in like the last half decade or so. It totally meant it. It It's psyched to have you on the show. Well,
0: thank you. I appreciate it. Tell Um, my
1: boss. What's that?
0: Tell my boss. (laughs) Yeah.
1: They should listen to our podcast and then have a bunch of other people subscribe too. Here's one topic that you've written a lot about, and it's going to be the focus of our conversation today. Uh, It's marriage trends, uh, specifically for American young people, American millennials, or roughly the people in the ages of 18 to 34. I'm assuming that some of these trends probably also apply in other parts of the developed world. I don't see why these socioeconomic trends wouldn't. But let's talk about your column. So I want to start with one quote from a column you wrote at the end of last year. Here it is. Americans aged 18 to 34 are less than half as likely to be married as our counterparts were 50 years ago. Uh, Why don't we start by talking about what might be causing this and why it's important?
0: I think the popular perce- perception is that millennials are just, um, you know, in extended childhood. Even they're they're young adults, but they they're in an ex- a sort of a period of extended adolescence. They don't want to settle down. They don't want to commit to people. They just want to party and go to brunch and whatever other terrible things millennials do. If you look actually at the data, at survey data about aspirations to get married, the vast majority of young unmarried people uh, very much want to get married. Um, They have idealized marriage to some extent. And one could argue that the reason why they are delaying getting married is not so much that they just all want to be, you know, bachelors and bachelorettes for the rest of their lives, but they don't feel like they have met the prerequisites that are necessary to take that step, both they and their potential mates. So if you look at perceptions of what you should have already crossed off your list, what sort of milestones you should have crossed off your list before tying the knot. There's a huge divide between what young people believe is a necessary step and what their elders believe. So things like, should you have already graduated college? Should you have paid down your debt? Should you own a home? Actually, like four in 10 young people believe that they should own a home before getting married. I guess that would mean that you might have two houses. I don't exactly, you know, depending (laughs) on whether you're already cohabiting. Um, You know, should you uh, have lived together before getting married? Young people are much more likely to say yes than older people. And And, And the
1: thing that makes a lot of those things possible, which is having a good job.
0: Yes. So what I was going, where I was leading to, I should say, is that there are these new cultural changes in what people believe is necessary before getting married, both for for themselves and for a potential mate, and layered on top of that is the fact that a lot of those milestones have drifted further out of reach. So having a stable job, paying down your debt, having already graduated college, you know, there are a lot of people who have enrolled in college but haven't finished, um, owning a home. Those kinds of things have become prerequisites, but they are also harder to obtain. So you kind of have this layering effect of both changing cultural views and changing economic status that together is conspiring to make it harder for young people to feel like they're ready to get married.
1: Those things are harder to obtain. They also take a while. You know, if you look at the debt levels that college students come out of uh, school with now, I mean they're huge. Uh, And obviously, the average doesn't tell you exactly what everybody has. I mean, there's a lot of disparity there. But some people are coming out of school with tens of thousands of dollars in debt. That takes a while to pay down. And if you're going to pay it down, you also need a pretty good job. Uh, Young people, I think, were disproportionately hurt in the aftermath of the Great Recession as well. It seems like a lot of pressure for young people. Am I right?
0: Yes. And even the kinds of milestones that might seem easier to achieve things like living together are actually also very challenging. If you look at the share of people who are living with young people who are living with their parents, you know, they're living in their parents' basements or in the attic or whatever. You know, they're they're stuck at home because they can't afford rent. So even this thing that seems like it should be easier to achieve, which is just trying out living together, whether you know, I'm I'm not talking about the morality of this. I'm just talking about what people actually say that they, they think they should do before getting married. Even that is very challenging
1: yeah i also really hate it when young people are denigrated for living at home with their parents when actually it's the responsible thing to do in many cases they get these labels like boomerang kids or uh you hear the cliche that they're all in their parents basements playing video games or something it all sounds a little bit ridiculous when so much of it just seems driven by circumstances i mean what else do we expect them to do
0: Especially when you consider that relative to the rest of the developed world, we actually have a relatively low share of people, young people who are living at home prior to marriage. So it's a norm that we've had in the United States for a long time, but just because it's been a norm here doesn't mean it's necessarily objectively a good thing for young people to be living alone, um, or to be living outside of their, their parents' house in any case. Particularly given the fact that for decades we have encouraged overinvestment in a in, uh, buying of, of houses sure. amongst parents, right? I mean, through the mortgage interest deduction, we have been encouraging boomers, I mean, amongst others, to buy more house than they need. So, you know, through basically we've been paying them to do this. So if they have more house than they need, why not allocate that resource more efficiently by saying, yeah, how's your, how's your own kids, you right. know, for a little yeah. while, while they're struggling to get a job that actually allows them to live outside of the house. And bear in mind, of course, that a lot of the young people who are living at home are not really there by choice. I mean, I love my parents, don't get me wrong, but I'm glad that I'm not living with them right sure. now. The young people who are who are bunking up with their parents are doing so basically out of necessity, not because it's super fun to have mom and dad waiting on you all the time or, or whatever the stereotype is.
1: Yeah, there, there's an interesting way that you describe the cultural shift too between how people used to look at marriage versus how they look at it now. Before, marriage was something that you did shortly after school. It was something that you did as a way of kind of launching all the other things that you were going to do in your life, your career, uh, your family, having kids, uh, figuring out where you were going to live, stuff like that. Uh, Now it's considered more like a final achievement of having worked out everything that it means to be a young adult.
0: Yeah, the formulation that I've heard that I like, that I've often used, is the capstone versus the cornerstone model. This is is not not original to me. A lot of sociologists and economists have used this term. But basically what it means is, um, you know, rather than having marriage be the foundation of your economic security, that you first get married and have kids and then kind of work out the other stuff about career and housing and uh, and things like that, the the cornerstone model, it's the capstone model. It's that after you have achieved all of these other milestones – as we were talking about, that's when you decide, okay, now I feel financially stable enough to get married. It's like marriage is more of a luxury good in a way than it used to be seen. It wasn't something that you did at the start of your career. Now you want to be settled in your career. You want to be on the right trajectory to making more money, to paying down your debt, to being able to support the kids that you, you know, maybe want to have. Then, uh, than, you know, having marriage come at the beginning and then figuring out all the other stuff. And there's a lot of um, debate amongst, you know, sort of on the, less on the economic side and more on the social side of things, you know, amongst people who are worried about what does this mean for the family, if people are putting off getting married, particularly if they're putting off getting married but they're not putting off having children, Um, what does that mean for children themselves, given that we know that, um, or it, it appears anyway, that a stable commitment between parents is a is generally a, a you know the the best setting financially amongst otherwise for children not the only setting of course but you know there are a lot of other questions that come up when you look at these types of numbers about what does this do for the economy but also what does it do for how how we interact with each other with institutions and um, how we think about poverty
1: no and and even to diverge from the economics of it more uh, and to I guess drift into the field of I don't know romance or something like that like th- there's also the sense in which um, maybe this leads to a stabler kind of marriage if you achieve all these other things first and then you're definitely sure of the person you're gonna marry but there seems to be, like, a sense of loss of, like, a shared history if you end up marrying somebody in your mid to late 30s versus in your early 20s where you share the struggle with somebody all those years, right? Uh, whereas later on, I think the formulation, uh, and as you said earlier, this is not, like, specific to me, is that uh, now it's more as more of, like, a partnership um, than it is two people trying to figure out how to hack their way into the yeah, world. Yeah, you know? and
0: you can romanticize Either one, right? right? I mean, there is evidence to suggest that when people get married later, those unions are more stable. Um, maybe partly because uh, the well, it's partly selection here, but the kinds of people who are getting married later are more settled in their career. They they might have fewer stresses from financial problems, etc., because. The mere fact that they decided to get married at that point suggests that they're battling fewer of those problems.
1: And maybe they know each other better. Or and they, maybe, and maybe they know they themselves know each better. Ha- maybe,
0: yeah. Yes. I mean, there, there are a lot of different theories. It's it, Obviously, we can't run a controlled experiment where we say, OK, you guys <laughs> get, mar- get married at 22 and you guys right. get married at, at 32, and then we'll see who does better. Like, that's not how life works. Right. Unfortunately, we can't test these things. We can only kind of try to tease out the data um, and say, well, here are the patterns we see. Maybe it's causal. Maybe it's not causal. But, I mean, one bright side of the fact that people are putting off marriage, at least if you care about the stability of the unions, is that we have seen divorce rates go down. Um, Again, some of that may have to do with the kinds of people who are getting married. We haven't even talked about this, but it's kind of implicit in what we've discussing, which is that rich people, or more highly educated people, I should say, are much more likely to get married than um, less educated people, which is something that was not always true, or at least the gap has grown. Um, So... People who – so, you know, those unions are maybe more stable because they're getting married at older ages. Maybe they're more stable because it's the the, the other attributes that go along with um, the kind of person who is more likely to get married at an older age. But either way, the net effect is that divorce rates have gone down. And actually, one interesting thing that I've come across and that I wrote about I think a few months ago is that young – people, well, Americans in general, but young people in particular have gotten – Much more liberal on a lot of social issues, so things like is it okay for um, a woman to raise a child on her own? I don't remember exactly how it's phrased, out of wedlock, something like that. Some of the some of the language is loaded, obviously, but something like that. You know, is it okay for a woman to raise a a child on her own? And the share of people who say yes has gone up. um, That that's much less stigmatized. But if you ask about Uh, whether divorce is the right way for a couple that can't seem to get along to settle their differences, actually the share of people who are accepting of that has gone down. So people have become more approving of um, having children outside of marriage, of, you know, living in sin, so to speak, a lot of right. those other kinds of things, and they're more disapproving about divorce. And one possible interpretation of that has to do with this fact that people have idealized what marriage is and that you should have, you know, you should have your stuff together by the time you get married, and therefore it's unacceptable to for your for your marriage to dissolve because by the time you've gotten to that point, You should have everything figured out. You know, I think that's sort of the psychology here. Again, it has to do with this idealization of marriage, which is maybe good and and maybe bad, but um, either way people are becoming more judgmental of the divorces when they do occur, even though there are fewer of them.
1: This is fascinating. You have these two concurrent trends that don't seem to make sense, that are hard to reconcile, at least at first sight. You have like the sexual revolution, essentially. As you said, Americans getting more tolerant of people living in sin, but also of people starting to have sex younger, of children being had outside of marriage, of people just cohabitating indefinitely without getting married, even with kids, right? In other words, the family unit being defined as something different from something that necessarily has to be within a marriage. Uh, And then on the other hand, you have divorce rates falling. I guess when when you look at the explanations that you just gave, it's no surprise then that marriage rates, especially for young people, have fallen. You mentioned the idealization of marriage, but at the same time, you have like the ability to get married by crossing off all of those things first, like sort of really hard for people to actually achieve all those things. And what ends up happening, and this is also a point in your column, is that people view either themselves or potential partners as unmarriageable because they haven't crossed off all right, those other exactly.
0: ticks. It's not only that these kinds of prerequisites, these milestones, apply to oneself. It's also that they apply to a potential partner. And uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but this is especially true for women as I recall. So young women, when asked, you know, what's important in a mate, they're very likely to say, or more likely than men to say, that they should have a stable career, stable income, something like that, you know, that that's important to them. And given that you have seen declining labor force participation rates amongst men, um, including prime-age men. Uh, that suggests that there, there are, there's a smaller share of men out there whom women view as marriageable, if right. that makes sense. I mean, there's a lot of debate about exactly what it means to be marriageable with, within the academic community, but it's hard to argue with the fact that a lot of people see these kinds of qualities as key attributes both for themselves. You know, they're holding themselves to these standards, but they're also holding their potential partners to these standards, and if you if you have... Uh, these standards as being higher for one sex than the other and that sex happens to be the one that is less likely to go to college, for example, and has seen earning potential fall, then that's not going to improve trends either.
1: Yeah. um, This is something I think about a lot too in the context of graduation rates where we see that women are graduating college at a ratio of something like six to four, right? Three to two, I guess, female to male in terms of graduates now. Um, And it seems like something where, you know, to the extent that this continues and maybe it'll change, you know, over generations, but to the extent that all of the trends that you just mentioned continued, you're going to continue to see only very well-educated people getting married. And if anything, you might even see marriage rates amongst uh, people without college degrees continue to fall. Um,
0: We've also seen more uh, what's called assortative matching, assortative mating, meaning that rather than the sort of Cinderella story where the rich or the highly paid, well-educated guy – marries the the less well-paid less educated woman or what you know these sort of um yeah this
1: like 1950s in- uh yes. fairy tale ideal
0: of you what know a don draper be. marrying right. his secretary or, or whatever uh model you want to use those kinds of matches are are much rarer than they used to be instead what you're seeing is like marrying like which means that college graduates are marrying college graduates People who didn't go to college, to the extent that they are getting married, um, are marrying people who are equally as educated or as uneducated as they are. And one consequence of this is that, well, there are a number of consequences, but what one big one is that actually it increases inequality, right? Because what happens is, if like is marrying like, and the richer pairs are are marrying off and the less rich pairs are not. You have two people who are relatively well-paid, relatively well-educated, have a lot in assets combining their fortunes, uh, such as they are, and becoming even better off. And then the less educated, less well-paid, poorer people not getting married and sort of staying poor and alone and not combining their assets. So you have this sort of exacerbation of, um, of trends that we've already seen in the, in the economy, um, you know, in, in terms of growing inequality and, uh, and segmentation of classes, but it's being reinforced by people only wanting to marry people who look like them, who are as equally as well-educated and, and high-earning as they are.
1: think you also see in the research that this kind of assortative mating tends to rise and fall in line with the rise and fall of inequality itself. And you could kind of see how that would work. If you notice that inequality is climbing, you might lament it, Right, You might notice it. You might even advocate for doing something about it, and I hope people do. But at the same time, you might want to get ahead of that trend, and you might be more likely to marry somebody who's like you if you are well-educated and you have high earnings potential, especially when you take into account the consideration of children, right? I mean, this is how it really threatens to kind of be a self-perpetuating problem. Uh, it's not just like marrying like and combining their fortunes and even being better off. It's that then they have those fortunes to bestow on their kids.
0: Right. And to drive home a point that you – it seems like you were getting at, you know, not to be uh, so sort of crass and money-grabbing about it, but – one huge advantage of going to college is not only that it increases your earning, your own earnings, but it also increases the likelihood that you will marry someone who is of high earning potential as well. And you know, people joke about going to college or going to grad school to get your MRS. Um, if you know, if you're if you're a woman, but this is true for men too, right? <laughs> that that if they if they go to college, they're much more likely a to get married and b to get married to to a woman who has better earning power. And this this affects not only the family unit when it's just two parents, but it affects the amount of resources that they have to devote to children, um, the amount of time that they have to devote to children, and lots of other things that sort of um, spin forward uh, these consequences.
1: Okay. Well, it's a fascinating chat, but Catherine, before we let you go, it is time for our long form recommendations. What do you think our listeners should be reading, watching, or listening to?
0: One book that I read recently that I quite enjoyed is called To Make Men Free. It's a history of the Republican Party. It's by Heather Cox Richardson. It came out a few years ago, but it's a really fascinating read about the genesis of the Republican Party um, going all the way back to Abraham Lincoln and how much the party's values have changed and the coalitions supporting Democrats and Republicans have evolved over time. Really fascinating stuff.
1: Okay. Okay. Uh, And my recommendation is Out on the Wire, The Storytelling Secrets of the New Masters of Radio. This is by Jessica Abel. It's written in cartoon form. I don't know if we refer to that as like a graphic work of nonfiction. I'm not totally sure, but essentially it goes behind the scenes of shows like Planet Money and This American Life. Uh, It has interviews with not just Ira Glass, but a lot of other people who have been sort of instrumental in constructing the new public radio and now podcasting environment that we're all in and in which alpha chat is obviously now participating in Catherine Rimpel, this was such a pleasure thanks for coming in thank you and that's it for today's show you can reach us at 917-551-5012 for our overseas listeners that's country code plus one email us at alpha chat at ft.com also please Rate the show on iTunes. I'm not joking when I say that it helps a lot of people find us. And show notes, as always, are going to be at ft.com forward slash alpha chat. Special thanks for this episode to Merit Bond Walker for providing some of the background noise, even if it did mostly consist of cooing and eyeing. And of course, the only third party candidacy I would support is one with Amy Keene, producer and editor of Alpha Chat at the top of the ticket. I'm not qualified to be her vice president, but if you think you are, you can feel free to leave your qualifications when you email us. We, of course, hope that you do. Thanks, as always, to our listeners. We'll see you here again next Friday for another episode of Alpha Chat.